0: Hey everybody, welcome back to the Gazdaska Conlantine Team Podcast. I normally would say, hey buddy, how you doing? But today I am flying solo again. John got tied up on some appointments before his vacation. We won't talk about that. He uh, gets a little guilty about going on vacation, but it is much needed, it is time for him to get away. So I am all alone today, but we're doing a little FAQ. So we're just gonna go through a few commonly asked questions that we get all the time, that people just aren't normally aware of in the city if they've never bought before, if they're not clear on what a co-op is versus a condo, et cetera. Three questions, uh, as is typical. I think we've done this a few times now, but the first one is square footage. So square footage is always, always a source of angst in our city for two reasons. One is in the cooperative world. So our market is about 70% still cooperatives. You're actually buying shares of a, co- of a corporation. Your title is technically a tenant shareholder. You're not even really an owner, but because you're buying shares of a corporation and not real property, uh, there's no listed square footage for the apartment. So there's no basis to work from. So in a condominium, As a contrast, typically, the condominium has an estimated square footage in the offering plan, which is the original document that sets up mainly the rights and responsibilities of the sponsor or the developer. Because that co-op does not have those square footages, well, where do those numbers come from? Typically, they come from the broker, if they put an estimation out there. We personally don't put square footage. We get a square foot Estimation from our floor plan people, the people that put together the floor plan, go through and really measure out to the to the inch uh, on each one of our listings. But we don't even publish it because it seems, you know, what? No matter what I tell you, you're probably gonna think I'm. It's either high or low. In condominiums, the other complication when it comes to square footage is uh, the condominium square footage is really embellished. What we like to say is that it measures from the exterior wall to exterior wall of the apartment so if you have a 1500 square foot condo you know there's a loss factor there so the square footage is most pertinent when you're comparing a condominium apartment to another condominium apartment within the same building if it's in the same building then they they use the same methodology to come up with the square footage and you can look at price per square foot. It's still pertinent looking condo to condo, but if it's a 1980s condo versus a 2005 condo, there are some small differences. That is all sort of secondary because people just generally use square footage price. Is there a big difference? No. Is there, you know, it's not like the embellishment got changed by 10% or something like that. But at the end of the day, if you see square footage on a co-op, it's not listed anywhere in black and white. It's, some, it's maybe from an appraiser, it may be from the owners themselves. We have had listings where the seller says, no, no, this is 1500 square feet. And when we measure it, it's you know 1300 square feet. So you always have to take it with a grain of salt, but there's, and there's, there's other caveats to, uh, uh, to the square footage question, but that's the long and short of it. Secondly, what constitutes a pre-war apartment? So we throw around term post-war and pre-war all the time in our market. Pre-war is really referring to pre-World War II. Before 1940, basically 1942, there was a lull in developments right around the war, which makes sense. So you don't see buildings that were built and, and sold off in 1943 or 1942. Some, the earlier ones, you may see at 1950, if there was something already in the works or something. But there's also a lot of typical uh, amenities or details that come along with a pre-war apartment. So... Generally speaking, you have higher ceilings, you have bigger rooms, because it lends itself more to a a formal living time. So you had a formal living, a formal dining, sometimes staff rooms are many times in old pre-war layouts. Herringbone floors were very popular at the time. Wood burning fireplaces, beamed ceilings. So not only higher ceilings, but you have the be- the exposed beams in the ceilings, decorative beam ceilings, which are quite nice. A lot of times, less closet space, so they didn't have as many clothes. But given the grander floor plans, most of that has been you know compensated for. There was room in a primary bedroom to expand into a big walk-in closet or something like that, um, and that's because you had these generous proportions. Central air is typically not seen or allowed in pre-wars, although that, you know, it it just varies building to building, but very structurally sound buildings typically, very warm buildings. You have lots of uh, insulation, the old plaster walls and stuff that really insulated the buildings well, both from a noise standpoint and air standpoint, heat and air conditioning. So those are the typical amenities or or details that you see within a pre-war building, but the pre-war dates, Pre uh, World War II. Last but not least, we have washers and dryers. So always a uh, a sticking point for apartment hunters in the city. I would say if I was to be forced into a corner and say what percentage of the apartments in the in the city allow washers and dryers in the unit, my guess is it's somewhere around 50 percent maybe a little bit more now, they, they typically aren't allowed to be installed for one reason, which is once you allow one person to put in a washer dryer, everybody wants a washer and dryer. So, and the plumbing simply can't handle it. So now some buildings over time, I mean, now we have buildings in the city that are over a hundred years old. A lot of times, those plumbing risers. So, the, a plumbing riser is is a stack of of pipes that runs from the basement of the building, where it ties into the sewer systems of the city, goes all the way to the to the top floor of the building. Those old risers, many times, can't handle if everybody puts it in, and then that becomes the engineering issue. And the last thing you want in any building is to have a pipe burst. It does a million dollars worth of damage in about five minutes, and it takes a lot to contain it. That is the number one reason why buildings don't allow them to be installed. Uh, There are other limitations which, uh, even if you can install them, they typically need to be installed in a wet area. So wet, typically wet area, bathroom or kitchen area, uh, butler's pantry. Uh, in a pre-war, or even a staff room many times is considered wet area because it's very much adjacent to kitchens and such. There's a a beautiful way to get around the the pain in the neck of not having your own washer dryer, and that is sending your laundry out. So every building pretty much has laundry rooms in their building. So you can go down and do it yourself. And for a few years, my first few years living in the city, I would go to a laundromat. And I would do my laundry and it was fine. But then I moved into an apartment on 14th Street between 1st and A. It just so happened to be directly above a laundromat and dry cleaners. And they have this thing called wash and fold. So you drop off your laundry and you get it back in the next day, basically, all nice, neatly folded. And I said, oh, let me try this out. Never did my laundry again. So it is a... a, certainly a readily available and easily affordable option, there are options to get you around not having a washer dryer. Unfortunately, it is one of the very divisive issues out there when people are out looking. Many people, especially people with young children, want to have the washer dryer. So the washer dryer is always, it's readily available, that information. It's number one, you know, probably in the top five questions we get asked on any of our listings, do they allow washer dryers? Um, so it's usually written in the bylaws of the building or in the house rules, which is set forth by the board of directors for the building. And it's it's usually the building has an engineering firm that runs tests and makes sure what it's to see whether the plumbing can handle it. Now there's caveats to that. Sometimes they've used to allow washer dryers and they're grandfathered in. What you need to be careful there is that sometimes those grandfathered in units may need to be removed if the apartment trades hands. So that's just a little due diligence You know, quirk about it is that you need to make sure just because the washer dryer is in the unit, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's gonna be able to remain in the unit in perpetuity. That's about all I got for you today. I hope everybody has a wonderful week. John will be back with me refreshed and uh, bright eyed and bushy tailed next week. And have a great week, stay safe, stay healthy, stay in gratitude, remain in gratitude. I think that's what John always says. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out. Uh, you can find us anywhere. Take care, everybody. Thanks for watching or listening to the Gustafske Conlin Team podcast. If you want to find us online or sign up to get our monthly and quarterly market stats, come on over to our website, gustafskeconlonteam.com or you can find us on all social media with the handle at If this show was helpful, entertaining, or informative, consider telling friends and family or leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks again for tuning in. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss our next episode, and we'll see you next time.